this scripture this morning. Oop, there we go. We're just going to cut that other microphone off. If it's being cranky this morning. We're going to sing our psalm, and it's found in your hymnal, if you like, on page 766. If not, it is on your screen. Go ahead, Dan. whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed are those whom the Lord does not hold guilty and in whose spirit there is no deceit. What, when I did not declare my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not hide my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord. Then you forgave the guilt of my sin. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice. Therefore, let those who are godly offer prayer to you. At a time of distress, the rush of great waters shall not reach them. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You encompass me with deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Do not be like an unruly horse or a mule without understanding, whose temper must be curbed with bit and bridle. Many are the pangs of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds those who trust in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous. Shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Be glad in the Lord and Would you pray with me? Bless us, O Lord, as we open these scriptures. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable unto you, 
O Lord, our rock, our only strength, our redeemer. Amen. I was reading a book review this week about a book coming out in April, a new novel by uh, Abby Greaves entitled The Silent Treatment. This novel was inspired when she read a newspaper article about a boy in Japan who had never, never seen his parents speak to one another. The review begins like this. By all appearances, Frank and Maggie share a happy, loving marriage. But for the past six months, they have not spoken. Not a sentence, not a word. Maggie isn't sure what exactly provoked Frank's silence, though she had a few ideas. Day after day, they've eaten meals together and slept in the same bed in an increasingly uncomfortable silence that has become for Maggie deafening. Then Frank finds Maggie collapsed in the kitchen, unconscious, an empty bottle of sleeping pills on the table. Rushed to the hospital, she's placed in a medically induced coma while the doctors assess the damage. If she regains consciousness, Maggie may never be the same. Though he's overwhelmed at the thought of losing his wife, will Frank be able to find his voice again, explain his withdrawal, or is it too late? Well, who knew? Who knew that our ancient psalmist was also a clinical psychologist? The author of Psalm 32 had discovered what Maggie and Frank, in their truth, have acknowledged. While I kept silence, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. His is a kind of teaching testimony contrasting the deadly silence of life-stifling pain with the life-giving release of giving voice to honest confession. With absolute deliberateness, he states, while I kept silent, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not hide my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. The awareness existed even then that sin and the debilitating spiritual effects of anger and guilt left people ill, broken, and cut off from healing. 
making them sick of heart and mind individually and collectively. In fact, he warns that when we refuse to acknowledge our sin, it tends to fester and comes out in all kinds of unhelpful ways as pride, anger, and bitterness, harming not only us, but those around us. So why do you think the psalmist makes such a big deal about confessing? Well, he tells us right up front in the first two verses. Happy are those whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Happy are those to whom the Lord imputes no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. The long and the short of it, my friends, is that confession is the road to healing and forgiveness is the road to joy. So why is it so hard for us to confess to each other? Martin Luther, perhaps not surprisingly, saw it as pride. I do not want to recognize or acknowledge my sin, he said. I thought I was pious. We could be tempted to think, I'm saved after all. I asked Jesus into my heart and confessed my sin on such and such a date. I've done the hard work of acknowledging I am a sinner. And while there may be occasional need to confess some really broken bad things here and there, the need to confess being a sinner, don't we think is kind of covered? The thinking might go like this. I'm a pretty good person. I go to church. I try to help people and be kind to them. I volunteer my time. The mandate to confess that we are sinners can begin to feel pretty offensive. Like it's too much over the top, given all the efforts at living the Christian life. No harm intended. Unfortunately, that same thinking has given us permission to say, if I'm not doing any harm in my mind, I'm not responsible for the pain of others. Don't we have a legacy of sin even in this country? We cannot deny that much of American history was built on the back of Africans and their descendants. Even with the Emancipation Proclamation and the promise of 40 acres and a mule, efforts immediately rose from all over to see that those promises were not kept. We even took their music. There would be no remuneration for generations. And after the Civil War, with the protection of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment to the Constitution and the Civil Rights Act of 1866, don't you know Americans, African Americans, enjoyed a period, a period in which they were allowed to vote, actively participate in the political process, acquire land, seek their own employment, and yes, use 
public accommodations. Opponents of this progress, however, soon rallied to find ways to erode the gain for which many had lost their lives. And the activities of the organizations such as the KKK undermined the working of the acts, failing to guarantee the civil rights of African Americans. Lest we think this is old news and not a part of our responsibility, we need to be aware that East Coast Knights of the True Invisible Empire a KKK organization, and The Right Stuff, which is a white nationalist organization, are operating as a formal organization right here in Columbus. And in Worthington, yes, Worthington, the Daily Stormer is a neo-Nazi, white supremacy, Holocaust-denying website. And these are three of the 36 hate groups formally recognized in the state of Ohio alone. Our sin and our lack of awareness that participates in our sin has to be owned. I have to own mine and apologize to you and to the African-American friends I know. No wonder our confession reads, Most merciful God, we confess that we sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by, by what we have done and why what we have left undone. We've not loved you with our whole heart. We've not loved our neighbors as ourselves, we are truly sorry and we re humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us. Without owning the pain that we cause each other, family, friend, and neighbor, without owning the pain we allow to continue around us, we prevent the family of God from being repaired and made new. There is good news. Our psalm also makes it just as clear that God is already willing to forgive, to preserve us and to surround us with steadfast love. Even in the wasteland of sin, we are never beyond God's gracious desire to bring us home. Notice that from the psalmist's perspective, refusing to clear the slate made him feel that the hand of God was heavy upon him. Wesley would later describe that weight, that heavy hand, as the presence of God's Holy Spirit, day and night, calling us into confession, the prevenient grace of the Holy Spirit, standing ready to forgive and initiate our engagement with God, coming long before we even had the first desire to confess 
or ask for mercy. God is the one who creates the longing in our hearts for restoration and forgiveness. We just aren't that quick. And any righteousness we achieve is by divine forgiveness rather than a lack of our sin or even our supposed perfection. Raise your hand if you've figured out how to stop sinning. If it were up to us, the Lord had quit a long time ago. Sin is not going anywhere. For the psalmist, God's grace is not contingent on our confession. The grace and mercy of God is always ready. So the psalmist is most concerned about the effects of confession on us, on our human spirits, and how it signals a new awareness, a change of heart and mind, both in community and individually. Confession is the necessary step to cleaning our house and forgiveness provides the healing moving into the world. Back in the 90s, a guy by the name of Daniel Goleman wrote a book, uh, first time describing emotional intelligence. Depending on who you read now, there are either five or seven key factors of those with emotional intelligence. And as I wondered about that, it really sunk into me that emotional intelligence is forgiveness intelligence. It's forgiveness awareness. Think about it this way. Forgiveness intelligence, per, forgiveness intelligent persons are change agents. People with high forgiveness intelligence aren't afraid of change because they know how deeply, how deeply they have been forgiven and it is unconscionable to withhold it from another. They understand that change is a necessary part of life and they adapt. We can choose to embrace our forgiveness and make a living witness and experience for others. Folks aware of their forgiveness are more self-aware, recognizing what we know and what we might still have to learn. Awkwardness and embarrassment cannot hold them back. Forgiven people commit to a greater empathy exploring what it must be like to stand in another's shoe or life, choosing to understand rather than choosing to be oblivious and hurtful. People with great empathy reduce drama. Forgiven people are curious. Because they are freed by grace, they have an inborn sense of wonder and curiosity that makes them delightful to be about and reflective of God's wondrous love. They don't judge. They explore possibilities. They ask questions and are open to solutions. Forgiven people are gracious, 
They know every day brings something to be thankful for. And they don't see the world as a glass half empty. They see it as a glass God full. They cultivate joy. So we get it, right? The problem is not how God sees us. The problem is how we see each other. For if we cannot confess and accept God's forgiveness, then it becomes deeply difficult for our human community to be grounded in God's mercy, creating a fellowship in which forgiveness is restorative justice. Verse 9 counsels us not to be like a horse or a mule without understanding, having to be tempered by bit and bridle. Do we not need to be over ourselves a bit and grasp the reality that we're a part of the destruction of ourselves and our brothers and sisters? Marjorie Thompson in her book, Forgiveness, says this, the purpose of repentance is to transcend our limited view of reality. By opening up to God's much larger and more generous view of reality requires us at some level to go out of our minds, at least as they now operate. This is personal. When we repent or confess, when we are honest about our weakness, about our pride and fear, about our part in the sordid affairs of the human family, a strange thing begins to happen. We begin to notice the people we have misjudged and mistreated. We start to see faces, those we have made no effort to understand, those we have ignored or avoided, those we've been jealous of, those to whom we have not kept our promises, those we've criticized or belittled, the faces of those whose names have not been safe in our mouths. Which brings us to the matter of an apology. It can feel remarkably hard to apologize or forgive someone, can't it? I want to share a true story shared by Ella Cara Deloria living among the Dakota Sioux Indians. A young man in that tribe had been murdered and his enraged family members gathered to spew their anger and seek revenge. The eldest male leader of the tribe listened he let them talk out all of that anger and their desires for getting even. And he repeated back to them what he heard. He then quietly smoked for a while and was very calm. And finally, when he spoke, he said that there was a better way. Harder, perhaps, but a better approach. And he told all of them to go home and to look at their possessions and pick the one that they loved and cherished the most because they were going to come back together and give those gifts to the murderer for a token of sincerity and purpose. 
Then when he's among you, he will make, we will make of him a relative. Was the murdered one your brother? He was my nephew, so this man will be my nephew. And from now on, he shall be my nephew. And from now on, he shall be one of us. We will regard him as our dead kinsman returned to us. The Hardaway demanded of each person in the clan a powerful inner struggle to master their pride, their anger, and their desire for revenge. We all know violence doesn't do anything but produce more violence. At the appointed time, the murderer was brought before the council and given a peace pipe to smoke. And they said these words, Smoke, with these your new kinsmen seated beside you. For they have chosen to take you to themselves in place of the one who is not here. It is their desire that henceforth you shall go in and out among them without fear. With these presents which they brought before you, they would have you know that whatever love and compassion they had for him is now yours forever. Deeply moved. You can imagine the man sat there and wept. Didn't cry, wept. As the story goes, he would surely be the best possible kinsman ever, given the high price of his redemption. This corporate act of forgiveness that was simultaneously a profound act of individual self-healing and community peacemaking would in effect repair the badly torn fragment of the community. Truth. This elder was able to connect the tribe to the same humanness of his offenders. Truth. By taking in the murderer, they grasp the need for the whole community to heal. Now that's forgiveness intelligence. Paul speaks of the ministry of reconciliation in 2 Corinthians by saying this, Now if anyone is in Christ, he has become a new creature. All that is related to the old order has vanished. Behold, everything is fresh and new, and God has made all things new and reconciled us to himself and given us the ministry of reconciling others to God. In other words, it was through the anointed one that God was shepherding the world, not even keeping records of their transgressions. And he has entrusted us to the ministry of opening the doors of reconciliation to God. We are ambassadors of the Lord who carry the message of Christ to the world as though God was tenderly pleading with them directly through our lips. So we tenderly plead with you on Christ's behalf, turn back to God 
and be reconciled to him. We need to confess. Because in our confession is found forgiveness. And in our forgiveness, we have just unpacked the road to joy. Thanks be to God for this deep and powerful work. Let's do the impossible. Amen.